Welcome to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Schaffner, and today I'm speaking with Michael McAvoy. I really enjoyed this conversation and I learned a lot. We dive into something called the RCCX phenotype, and Michael's really trying to put the pieces together and to find patterns and why we're seeing the type of chronic illnesses we are and what to look for from a uh, genetic and epigenetic standpoint. Um, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Michael is very brilliant and we go deep into the science and I I hope that you learn a lot today. Michael McAvoy is the founder of Metabolic Healing. He has been involved in clinical practice since 2007. In addition to functioning as a clinician and writer, Michael is a teacher, educator, and systems creator of diverse health-related and functional medicine curriculum and modalities. Through unique educational and teaching endeavors, Michael's objective is to assemble a network of the world's top clinicians to meet the demands and challenges of the 21st century functional medicine and to implement the analytical tools and frameworks required. Michael can be considered an intelligence agent, expert scouring the diverse sources coming online in order to assist practitioners through evidence-based models, tools, and education. Welcome, Michael. I'm so excited to interview you today. Hi, Christine. Thanks for having me. Well, I've been, you know, learning about your work. Um, I've known your name in our, um, you know, community for a while, and I have just always been impressed by your blog articles. And I think last year I was just doing a Google search uh, for my own research around mast cell and extracellular matrix and cell danger response. And I just found these um, amazingly concise blog articles that you have written that really tied all the pieces of the puzzle together. And um, I've just been so impressed with your knowledge and your continual um, research that you're putting out in the community. So I'm really excited to interview you today. Thank you. It's, it's good to be here, and um, I'm I'm hopefully uh, hoping that I can share some information that's um, of of benefit to somebody out there that's listening. Absolutely, and you know, before we dive into your latest research and you know the science, I know our audience would love to hear a little bit more about your background and how you became passionate in studying all um, that you have around chronic disease and chronic illness. I have been doing this work for almost 13 years now, and I've kind of, like many practitioners, got started through their own health journey. I was traveling through the third world in my early 20s and became very sick um, with gastrointestinal symptoms, uh, multiple types of GI types of infections, and I was very scared as I lost a tremendous amount of weight in a very short amount of time. And that was a big wake-up call for me. I had basically embraced um, holistic medicine at that point um, and basically determined, was just determined to uh, take my health back in as many ways as I could. And over the course of the next two years, I experienced probably the best level of health that I had in my life. And it was at that point that I decided to make this my life's passion. And um, since that time, I've started a few companies. Um, the current company that I operate is called Metabolic Healing, and I'm the founder of Metabolic Healing. We have three parts to our company. Um, we do clinical consulting. We work with a lot of complex illness clients. Um, and we also have a institute where I teach and educate clinicians in various aspects of functional medicine, 
um, in clinical practice. And then the third part of our company is uh, True Report. And this is a uh, blood and genetics analysis software that I developed that helps um, patients as well as clinicians to analyze their genetic data as well as um, lab testing and, and helping with the area of client management. So those are the three parts of my company. And um, Christine, I know many of the same kinds of clients and patients were probably seeing a lot of the same kind of stuff um, in terms of a lot of overlapping conditions and comorbidities in, in multiple you know, patients with multiple diseases simultaneously occurring. And I've always wanted to really understand what are the underlying patterns that are, are common. And that's been a huge driving factor of my work in, in, in research is what are the underlying meta patterns that are, that are showing up in the chronic disease world. And um, I've stumbled upon, I think, some of the key mechanisms of that, or at least some of the key things that are going on. Um, as you mentioned in, in before this call, a lot of people with joint hypermobility syndromes and POTS and MCAS seeming to kind of be like this three-headed monster trifecta that <laughs> seems to show up quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've started to really, really look closer at some of the associations there and what I think may be going on. And so I've spent a lot of time really kind of going down a lot of different rabbit holes of research to try to understand how I can better serve my clients and, and contribute. Mm -hmm. And we're grateful that you've done this, you know, deep dive because, you know, on the front line, I know that you see, you know, patients as well as, you know, the work that we do at Sophia that we're seeing really complex cases and people who've tried a lot of things and we're, you know, in this constant search to find kind of a more elegant explanation of, you know, why some people have um, been so stricken by chronic illness while, you know, maybe a family member, you know, or a loved one in their, you know, in their home is, you know, perfectly healthy. And so how do we make sense of all of this um, and how some of us are super sensitive to our environment versus others. And so I think you're putting a lot of these pieces together and you shared with me, um, you know, before our call, um, a wonderful, wonderful article um, called "Defining the RCCX Phenotype." And I think, if you're open to it, I'd, I'd love for you to give, you know, a high level of, you know, really this um, pattern or the susceptibility that you're seeing for these, um, you know, this constellation of symptoms. As you said, I see a lot of young women, and when I say young women, I'm saying maybe 18 to early 30s that have, um, you know, again this joint hypermobility. Um, they could have mast cell activation syndrome. They could also be um, sensitive to mold. Um, they'll have POTS or some type of dysautonomia. Um, and, um, you know, they tend to be also, you know, they could have another, you know, trigger like a Gardasil vaccine or, you know, something like this. And they're, you know, really quite, you know, ill. And so I, I know they're not only women, but I, that's just the patient population I, I tend to see. And so, um, share with us, you know, how maybe this constellation of symptoms is, um, explained by this phenotype that you have, uh, uncovered. So I, I think it's a good place to kind of start by talking about the, the extracellular matrix and how I sort of kind of, I didn't really intend to, to discover these things. They just sort of happened. <laughs> and, um, 
you know, and the, a lot of times you get plagued with synchronicities and things that are just unexplainable. And, and that certainly was the case for me as I started to learn about this stuff. But I, I began to realize that a significant percentage of the people that I was seeing in practice had joint hypermobility syndromes, and they all shared a lot of common symptoms. Um, and so I began to go deeper into that particular, those particular patterns. And I began to realize that when you have joint hypermobility syndromes, this suggests that you have a disruption to what's called the extracellular matrix. So while current science and functional medicine is, is very kind of hyper obsessed with cellular biology and, you know, the extraordinary study of the human genome and intricate pathways of biochemistry, we've largely forgotten about the importance of the extracellular environment in which the cells exist in. And it's this extracellular environment that not only provides the structural scaffolding and the structural framework for our cells, but is also absolutely vital for the function of the cells the survival of our cells, the behavior of our cells, as well as the modulation of many important growth factors, which play a huge role throughout the physiology. And as I began to research more and more the common characteristic symptoms that would arise among people with joint hypermobility syndromes like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or non-diagnosed EDS, um, is that they share a lot of common uh, features, in, including chronic illness. <clears throat> um, and that is not to say that everybody that has joint hypermobility has chronic illness. I certainly know many people that um, have joint hypermobility that do not have chronic disease. But those that do often have very complex profiles and a lot of overlapping symptoms and syndromes dysautonomia, orthostatic tachycardia, mast cell activation. There's a tremendously high frequency of autoimmune disease and rheumatic diseases and inflammatory diseases among those with joint hypermobility syndromes compared to the, to the, the general population. Um, <clears throat> abnormal um, uh, brain structure abnormalities such as deformed amygdala hippocampus, um, highly emotionally sensitive, um, it's very common to see people that are hypermobile as being very empathic, and I would even say spiritually advanced in their ability to uh, having enhanced perceptive abilities. Um, people with hypermobility are prone to circulatory problems. They're prone to cardiac and esophageal valve-related problems. Um, there may be a history in the family of schizophrenia or autism, and so. I began to see that there's a lot of different overlapping symptoms. And then I actually stumbled upon a theory that uh, was actually explaining a large percentage of these hypermobile patients. And that particular theory um, is based around a very specific and anomalous gene cluster on chromosome six known as RCCX. And so as soon as I began to look at this, I, I just had a feeling that this was one of the most significant regions of the human genome and that it was likely playing a, likely is playing a very significant role in chronic disease susceptibility that runs parallel with joint hypermobility. And Sure enough, there's literally thousands of studies that have been published on different parts 
of the RCCX um, gene cluster, but there really was not any concise published theory about how this gene cluster is affecting the chronic disease population that we see. I was actually introduced to the work of Sharon McGlathry, who's a psychiatrist in Tucson, and I have to give her credit for, for making the initial um, clinical observations that, that defined the RCCX phenotype from, from her perspective as a psychiatrist, as she believes that it's the diathesis of, of, of psychiatric illness. And um, so the, the more I began to do extensive research on RCCX, the more I began to see um, the people in the population and their families um, that have that likely have significant um, anomalous activities with the RCCX cluster. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so going a step further, so what um, what cluster of genes are in this RCCX complex that, translate into um, these symptoms? I know there's a, a men, you know, many things to go over, but maybe we can, um, like you did in your article, just high level, go over each one and, um, you know, so people can start to see how this um, might um, have manifested in their own body. Um, and one thing, um, not to take us down too much of this, um, you know, in a different direction, but I'm glad you brought up the idea of the extracellular matrix. It's something, you know, that we try to you know, really work on with a lot of our patients from a clinical perspective. If you're um, in the audience and a patient, you how we most um, often address the extracellular matrix is through lymphatic work and making sure that the lymphatic system is um, not underaddressed and, you know, doing therapies, whether they're oral or manual techniques, but having a functioning lymphatic system will translate also. I, I mean, I believe that's what I see clinically um, into a better functioning lymphatic system, but if you do have some of these um, anomalies in the the matrix with the joint hypermobility, would you say that your lymphatic system might be more compromised just um, from from a genetic standpoint? Yes, Um, and so it's an important subject to discuss that that all of the nourishment and nutrition that goes to our cells has to travel through the connective tissue first and on its route there. And that means that um, the lymphatic system plays an integral role in the delivery of nutrients and the removal of waste from our cells. And in the instance of compromised ECM function, there can be all types of abnormalities with respect to lymphatic toxicity. And um, because of the immunological problems that arise commonly in people with hypermobility, um, especially the autoimmune components, we pay a lot of attention to the importance of the lymphatic system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just want to, you know, share that with our audience, just because, um, you know, it's an. I think it's one of the most overlooked systems in medicine. And when you work with usually a functional medicine provider or a holistic doctor or naturopath, they're going to pay way more attention, you know, to that than um, an average doctor. I would say. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Mm-hmm. So um, going back to this, you know, RCCX complex, I believe, am I correct, there's four genes in the cluster? Correct. And I, I want to start out by saying that, um, I want to prelude this by saying that that there's been an enormous amount of discussion about our genetics over the last five to 10 years because of the advent of direct-to-consumer genetic tests like 23andMe 
And there's been many attempts to try to utilize genetic testing for the purpose of creating therapeutic protocols and supplement programs based around our genetics. And there's a lot of problem in that kind of A plus B equals C approach. It often doesn't work because there's so many factors that control the expression of our genes and environmental factors and vectors all converging. But when we talk about RCCX, we are talking about a cluster of genes that does not behave like the rest of our genetics. The RCCX gene cluster is known as a copy number variation gene sequence. And copy number variation gene sequences are very rare in our genome. They only occur 4 to 9% of the time within our genetics. However, copy number variations are known to play a very significant role in the evolution of our species. And they, they are believed to play a role in creating diversity within the human population. <clears throat> and like so many other aspects of our genetics, there's always a flip side of that coin. It's very common that copy number variation gene sequences are highly prone to genomic instability and are therefore a great hotspot in our genome for chronic disease susceptibility. And so other copy number variations that are associated with different diseases, including the Huntington's um, gene is a copy number variation. Fragile X syndrome is a copy number variation gene. Um, even the Gilbert's syndrome um, has a pseudogene, so it would technically be a CNV as well. And so the RCCX region is a, a hot spot, and it exists in our genome in a very, very very complex part of our genome known as the HLA region or human leukocyte antigen. And the HLA region is on our sixth chromosome and it basically has three different parts to it, the HLA1, HLA2, and HLA3 region. And basically what you need to know is that the HLA region of our genes has a lot to do with immune signaling. So all of our genetic susceptibilities to autoimmune diseases, almost all of them, are found in different places on the, auto, on the chromosome 6 HLA region. Um, the, the susceptibility to mold and, and SIRS, for example, is, on, is, is within the HLA region. And so you've got a lot of different genes in here that have a huge influence on our, our, our uh, immune signaling. And so the RCCX region is literally in the middle of the HLA region. It's in the HLA-3 region. And I'm happy to talk about a lot of the different crazy anomalous things that are going on with the cluster. <clears throat> but what I'd like to do first is to actually explain um, what these genes, um, what, which genes are, are, make up the RCCX region, what they do. And then I'd like to talk about the overlap in their function and how basically these genes are they're sharing regions with each other, they're overlapping, and they're affecting each other. So the first gene in the region is um, known as TNXB, or Tenaskin X. And the Tenaskin X gene is centrally involved in our extracellular matrix. It's basically as a protein, um, the TNXB gene is the most one of the most abundant um, glycoproteins in our extracellular matrix. And when you have a full um, deletion of the TNXB gene leading to a, a true genetic mutation, um, haploinsufficiency, you have a form of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome that is associated with both hypermobility and joint 
uh, and skin hyperelasticity. Um, there's been studies that have shown that people with Tenascan X deficiency also have a high propensity towards inflammatory bowel diseases, as well as organ prolapse and retrograde, retrograde urination flow. Um, so the Tenascan X gene is, uh, is, the is one of the links in this region to joint hypermobility. And it's my postulation, and this hasn't been proven yet, but I believe that it will be proven in the next decade, that more subtle um, problems with the TNXB gene can cause hypermobility regardless of whether or not somebody has a full-blown mutation of this, of this gene. In other words, there's enough anomalous things that are going on within the RCCX cluster to produce a hypermobile pheno phenotype. So the, when, I'm, when I'm looking to identify somebody with an RCCX um, phenotype that I believe is affecting them, the first thing I'm looking for is, do they have joint hypermobility? Does it exist even on a you know, small bait and scale of even two or three? And if, they, if it is, then I start to ask questions about some of the other genes that are in the cluster. So sitting next to the TNXB gene on the RCCX region is a gene known as CYP21A2. And CYP21A2 is a cytochrome enzyme, cytochrome gene that produces the enzyme, what's known as 21-hydroxylase. And 21-hydroxylase is actually the enzyme that converts 17-hydroxyprogesterone into cortisol. So the gene that makes cortisol is located within the RCCX gene region. The scientific literature has found that the CYP21A2 gene is one of the most diverse genes in human DNA with over 150 haplotypes that have been identified. And, and so there's a tremendous variability with how that gene is going to function from person to person, family to family, patient to patient. The CYP21A2 gene also makes aldosterone. So the, the, according to the scientific literature, the diseases that are most associated with full-blown mutation of CYP21A2 is a condition known as congenital adrenal hyperplasia, or CAH. And uh, CAH is essentially where you, you are producing high amounts of androgenic hormones because you're not making enough cortisol. And this can obviously be life-threatening in certain cases, obviously. What also has been identified is that this gene can express itself in the brain and central nervous system. Um, it's been detected that 21-hydroxylase RNA is found in different regions of the brain, including the hypothalamus, including the limbic brain, including the brainstem, the spinal cord. And it's probably because of the fact that it's involved in the production of what are called neurosteroids, which are... Um, involved in anti-inflammatory uh, signaling, basically. I believe, and, Sh and Sharon McGlathry believes, that the mutations of 21-hydroxylase due to anomalous RCCX activities is probably affecting a vastly underreported percentage of the human population, and that it, it may be a key link to uh, psychiatric illness. Mm -hmm. So would people have too much cortisol or too little in their, in their brain if they have, I know there's many expressions of this, um, but what would, what are we seeing, um, 
you know, because I tend to see more anxious patients, more people who have, you know, um, you know, they're highly sensitive, overly anxious. And would that be part of this picture? So the short answer to that is, <laughs> is that we could talk about this all day, I'm sure. But <laughs> the short answer to that is, is that because the CYP21A2 gene is such a diverse gene with so many different haplotypes, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't translate as a black or white. Uh, if you have X mutation, you'll have X mm-hmm. cortisol. Mm-hmm. Um, there certainly are people that if you have low cortisol, I am absolutely investigating RCCX tendencies. For example, in lupus, if you ever see a patient with lupus, the probability that they have RCCX is extraordinarily high. It's almost a guarantee. And that is one of the central reasons for their, for their, one of the central genetic um, risk factors. Um, there's, there's many lupus patients, for example, that will show low levels of cortisol and low levels of complement C4, which is the other gene on the cluster. And the reason is that the introns within the C4 gene control the expression of cortisol. So that's one of the one of the anomalous things that tends to happen here is that the regions of one gene on the RCCX region can control the transcription of a neighboring gene. So that that by itself is a very unusual event that raises a lot of questions. That means that if you have if you have things going on in your um, in your C4 gene, that could be affecting your cortisol. In other words, cortisol and the innate immune system are tied at the hip, literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that makes a lot of sense from a evolutionary standpoint as well. And that's the thing is that you, I'm, I ask myself, well, what is, why do these genes end up in this region? Mm-hmm. How did these genes suddenly end up in this region? And, and what, what does it mean from a functional perspective of how the physiology was orchestrated in such a way. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the answer is that cortisol levels can be variable um, depending upon the CYP21A2 gene expression and genotype. Mm-hmm. Um, more often, even in, even in congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is the disease that's been most studied with CYP21A2, while most patients have been found to have low cortisol, they have actually found CAH haplotypes that had high cortisol. <clears throat> so it's, it isn't that, that one gene in particular is not a black or white in terms of will, it, will function be reduced or increased. I think that we need to look at CYP21A2 in relationship to many other diseases. And that is the, that's one of the things I wanted to get across in my recent article on the RCCX phenotype is this gene needs to be studied in far more diseases than it's being studied for. So, so we need researchers, we need researchers to do a a much more diverse job because from a clinical standpoint, you and I know, Christine, that cortisol is centrally involved in so many different client patients and clients and conditions that we see. But what, what is not being seen or recognized is that the, the gene that makes cortisol resides in arguably the most complex region of the human genome. Yeah, no, this is, you know, 
I mean, my mind is, you know, going in so many directions, um, you know, contemplating this right now. And I um, know I agree. And not, um, many of our patients um, know about also the cytochrome P450 system and the cytochrome, the um, the genes in the, you know, the liver, especially with the epigenetic influence of, you know, things like glyphosate and things that are um, affecting them and not to go down this rabbit hole, but just... And is that also affecting the regulation of this expression from an epigenetic standpoint? I found one study that identified that mercury inhibits the function of CYP21A2. So there's no question in my mind that there's going to be many epigenetic variables that are going to set off genes. And in fact, I've witnessed clinically how um, certain environmental factors, specifically mold, I can get a specific case study of that where that caused the expression of lupus uh, in somebody that, that had both the phenotype of low cortisol and low C4. Yeah, that's always, you know, my, you know, interest with the genetics is how our environment, what environmental triggers are, um, you know, most important when looking at, um, you know, um, these genes. So that's, that's exactly right. And mm-hmm. one of the main things to think about with, from a clinical perspective, when you see the RCCX phenotype is that they are far more susceptible to environmental factors. Mm-hmm. Which um, makes their, sense. their extracellular matrix is going to be weaker. They're not going to synthesize collagen at the same rate. That means that when you have toxins that, that are in their ECM, that are bound to the collagen, like your positively charged toxic metals that are binding to the negatively charged anionic sulfates in the in the ECM matrix, <clears throat> that's going to trigger inflammatory proteins like metalloproteinases to go in and break down the collagen. And so you basically have, as a result of that, you've got collateral damage. You've got proteoglycans that are circulating throughout the throughout the tissues that are then being picked up by macrophages, which are a type of white blood cell that trigger the inflammasome and the stimulation of interleukin-1, beta, and interleukin-17 and 18. That is setting the stage for autoimmune disease. So if your matrix is impaired because of hypermobility, you're going to have a much higher rate of damage-associated molecular patterns, or known as DAMPs, that are going to stimulate mechanisms that set you up for autoimmune activity. Our audience knows a lot about glyphosate, so tying glyphosate in to the glycine component of disrupting the collagen as well. Maybe I know you know a lot about that, but just, um, yeah, no, that's, um, yeah, it, it kind of comes all back to um, it, the environmental stress that we're all up against and how some people handle that stress better than others, right? And, and the, the third gene on the cluster ties right into that. Mm-hmm. And the third gene on the RCCX cluster is known as complement C4. And when I went down the complement C4 rabbit hole, which I'm still stuck in. <laughs> You'll be there for a while, probably. <laughs> I, I started to realize, I started to realize that the complement C4 gene and its involvement in the RCCX region is at the center, the epicenter of the neurological diseases that we're seeing today and are these individuals that have low low RCCX copy number, fewer copies of complement C4, low C4 levels are at a very high risk of schizophrenia, 
bipolar disorder, autism, and issues related to synaptic and dendritic pruning. I wrote an article back in June of 2018 that was actually looking at and tying together the known published uh, studies that were looking at how complement C4 is, is, is centrally involved in the pruning of, the, of our axonal terminals and our dendrites in our brain. Mm. Um, there have been multiple studies now that have been published that have shown that the uh, HLA region is the most it's the biggest hotspot for schizophrenia risk. And we've also found two different studies around the same time, about 10, 12 years ago. And, and those, the two studies found basically the same thing. The studies were looking at uh, autism and the association between complement C4B, which is one of the genes, and the null alleles of that, basically mutations of complement C4B, and, the, and the, basically the pre prevalence of that in autism. This is two different studies, one an Egyptian study, the other a Midwest study in the United States, and they found basically the same thing, that nearly 40% of autistic children had null alleles of the complement C4B gene. Well, we know that in autism, one of the central ideologies that doesn't get a lot of press is an excess number of brain synapses. Mm -hmm. Due to and, and the article that I wrote back in June tied together the fact that excessive mTOR signaling, which is the mammalian target of rapamycin, which is basically the, one of the main proteins that is involved in our growth processes, is excessive in the autistic brain. And we know that the autistic brain has an excess of synapses. And we know that complement C4 is one of the most important and prevalent proteins in the human brain that regulates the trimming of those synapses in the brain. And so what we're seeing, Christine, is we are seeing the epicenter of neurologic and psychiatric illness located within the HLA region. The susceptibility to that has already been published. It's already there. We already know it exists. The question now that remains is how many people in the population are being affected by this that don't know it, mm -hmm. and what can we do about it? And how do we measure it? I know we'll get, you know, um, to more of that as well. Um, as we go through this conversation, if people are wondering what, you know, their complement C4 or C4B status is, how to, um, you know, how to know our risk, right? Because then that will set us up to make better decisions, especially as, um, you know, around, um, not to go down this rabbit hole, but who to vaccinate versus not vaccinate and so forth. Well, as it turns out, many of the genetic risk factors for vaccine injury mm -hmm. have been found to associate with the HLA region. Hmm. Somebody needs to publish studies that have that will link together deficiencies of the innate complements, such as C4, C2, mm -hmm. uh, which is right next to the RCCX region, complement C2, factor B. These are all innate immune system um, uh related to the complement immune system. So what I, what I want to say is this, is that the complement C4 protein not only is strongly involved in the pruning of synapses in the brain, but is also one of the most uh, strongest associations to multiple types of autoimmune disease. And it is the autoimmune link to lupus, which uh, one study identified that Patients with lupus had a 75% uh, of patients with lupus have a complement C4 deficiency, meaning that they are they have a monomodular RCCX genotype or um, a, a C4 long or, or one C4 long and a C4 short. 
Um, the other autoimmune diseases that are strongly linked to complement C4 include rheumatoid arthritis, namely with the C4B deficiency, type 1 juvenile diabetes, which is associated with low C4 copy number, uh, celiac disease, which is associated with a, with a C4A, C4B genotype, null alleles of those, um, juvenile dermatomyositis, which is associated with a C4A deficiency, Graves' disease is associated with a C4A, C4B genotype known as A2B2, um, Basit's disease, which is a rare type of a vascular autoimmune disease, is associated, interestingly, with higher C4 levels and increased copy numbers of complement C4A. Crohn's disease has been shown to feature uh, C4 long and C4 short variations. So we know that C4 and its all of its different forms uh, can, can are, are huge links to, to multiple autoimmune diseases. I think that there's others that just haven't been identified yet. I found strong evidence for Hashimoto's, for example, um, and C4. I don't necessarily know if the autoimmune disease name necessarily matters as much as autoimmune activity. In other words, somebody should be looking at the association between C4 protein levels and autoimmune, uh, you know, ANA re reflex or ESR, you know, because I think that when it comes down to it, all autoimmune diseases are sh sharing similar things, imbalance between different parts of the immune system. So what, what complement C4 does is it's an integral part of the what's known as the complement immune system. And the complement immune system is one of the oldest parts of our immune system. It is centrally involved as one of the first lines of defense, actually. And the complement immune system gets a lot of press in the functional medicine and integrative medicine world today when we're looking at Lyme disease, when we're looking at mold and SIRS and mold illness, um, and we're looking at CFS ME, because the split protein C4A, for example, shows up quite a bit. You know, you see high C4A or you see high C C4A, you think about Lyme, you think about mold, you know, which one is it? Um, you, you think about um, anaphylaxitox, anaphylaxitoxin, which is C4A is, is you know, arguably an anaphylaxitoxin. So, you know, you see the levels of C4A being tested, but there's not many people that are actually testing the total C4. And the total C4 is going to be more reflective of the RCCX genotype. You can have high C4A and low complement C4. To me, that's a bigger problem than just having C4A because the total C4 is going to tell you this is what you've got to work with. So the other thing that I've found recently, and there's been a flurry of papers published in recent years, is that complement C4 regulates the expression and differentiation of a type of immune cell known as T-regulatory cells or T-regs. Now, what you have to understand, what the listeners need to know, is that in order to prevent autoimmune activity, you've got to have anti-inflammatory cytokines and anti-inflammatory immunosuppressant signaling that is activated and can be activated. In other words, we have to have enough inflammation we got to turn it on to fight bugs and infections and toxins, but it has to eventually recede and resolve and everything needs to go back to homeostasis. Well, we know in chronic disease and we know in autoimmune disease that that process is dysfunctional. And one of the things that C4 does is it regulates the expression of TGF-beta-1 as well as regulates the expression of T-regulatory cells. TGF-beta and T-regs 
are two central factors that control the gut microbiota and they control the expression of our Th1 inflammatory immune response. In fact, two separate papers found that peptides derived from complement C4B control and downregulate the Th1 immune response. So we know that C4 doesn't only mop up toxins and pathogens and binds to mold and viruses and fungi, which it does, but it's also involved in signaling, critically signaling the immune complexes that are necessary to give us self-tolerance so that we don't develop autoimmune disease. So if you're C4 deficient because of an RCCX monomodular genotype, your ability to regulate your T regulatory cells is going to be impaired. Your ability to regulate TGF beta is going to be impaired. If that's happening, your ability to turn off your autoimmune disease is going to be impaired. Yeah. And you know, a lot of, um, I'm so glad you're um, explaining it in this way. Cause when we also think about chronic infections and, you know, all of these things at the end of the day, it's not just the bug, right? It's how our immune system can interact with the bug and, um, you know, this whole idea of immune modulation, which you're describing beautifully. What so. we need to really focus on, in my opinion, in, in the current state of chronic disease is a new systems biology. Because there has been this debate for over 150 years now, going back to Pasteur and Beauchamp, about the micro versus the environment. And what we now have is the ability through using computational biology through using bioinformatics and metabolomics profiling, which is coming down the road, we have now the ability to understand the core mechanisms that go wrong when we're fighting an infection. And in my opinion, Dr. Navio has done as good of work as anybody in the world at identifying the necessity of this new systems biology that basically describes our inflammatory immunological processes, not as disease causing, but as a healing cycle. In other words, we need to be able, as you just pointed out, we need to be able to turn on our inflammation in order to fight the bugs that we're all exposed to on a regular basis all of the time. Who doesn't have parasites? Who doesn't have gram-negative bacteria? Who doesn't have viruses? Who doesn't have pathogens in them? We all do. The symptoms, the symptoms are, most of the symptoms that we experience are from our own immune responses or the inappropriate immune signaling or the inability to complete the inflammatory and or healing cycle, healing phase. And so I believe we need to look at chronic disease in a new context of immunological regulation. And the genetic susceptibilities that we, we all carry are going to be huge predispositions to that. And I believe that RCCX, from a, a clinical standpoint, probably is affecting 25 to 40% of the chronic disease population, and they don't know it yet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I am in complete agreement with you. And I think this information is, you know, part of what's helping to shift the paradigm, right? And, you know, in, um, you know, Dr. Navio's work, which is brilliant as well. And you write about that in, um, in your blog and how that relates to um, the extracellular matrix, right? Um, so no, I, I think these are so many great points. And, 
you know, before going to the next stream you had mentioned before, uh, we talked about how, um, you know, the C4 gene also um, can be affected by retroviral, um, endogenous retroviral um, DNA. And so it, I don't know if DNA is the right word, um, but ex endogenous retroviruses can um, affect um, the C4A. Um, Gene, and can you just share a little bit about that? We had Judy Mikevitz on the podcast um, telling us a lot about retroviruses, and I'd just love for people to hear kind of how it how endogenous retroviruses can affect your genetic expression. When I um, before I should say before I got involved in the RCCX research, I was actually working with um, a patient as well as with um, Dr. Mikevitz and another physician on a client that we were working with that has uh, ALS. And as we were going through the family history at the, at the clinic, we, I, I realized uh, right off the bat that he was hypermobile. And his sister had a cardiac valve abnormality and she was 30 years old and I immediately blurted out EDS, EDS. There's gotta be EDS here. And uh, then I, I realized that there was a strong history of lupus in the family. And right around this time, there was a study that was being done that was looking at the association between the endogenous retrovirus HERV-K and amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Mm -hmm. And um, Dr. Mikevitz and, and my partners at the time, were, were, we were kind of discussing whether or not this client, this patient should, should undergo that trial. But little did I realize at that time that the HERV-K retrovirus is actually located one, one, one location of the HERV-K retrovirus is located within the complement C4 gene within the RCCX region. So to back up, it's been established that somewhere between 8 to 13% of our own DNA is comprised of what are called endogenous retroviruses. And these endogenous retroviruses have evidently played a very important role in our development. And in fact, in, in uh, in fact, our retroviruses in our DNA are, are very important in, in the biological process of life. Um, they, certain retroviruses, uh, I believe HERV-K and HERV-W, can prevent the immune system from attacking the placenta. Um, so, you know, and that, that actually brings up some interesting questions about cancer and Dr. John Beard and Nick Gonzalez. Maybe we can save that discussion for another time. Um, but... But re re retroviruses, retroviruses have played a, a significant role throughout the evolutionary process. As it turns out, there's two places within the RCCX region that have them in them. And one is within the ninth intron of the C4 gene, the C4 gene, and the other one is in the fourth RCCX gene, which is known as STKV19 or RP1, as a what's called a retrotransposin. Um, also known as a long interspersed nuclear element, which is a retrovirus-like element. And so I went down a rabbit hole of trying to establish what is the C, what is the HERV-K retrovirus doing in the RCCX region, and can it actually can it actually reverse transcribe? Can it can it become activated? And I don't have an answer to that question um, at this time. However, there have been multiple studies that have found that the HERV-K retrovirus, the RNA of that is found in autism, it's found in schizophrenia, it's found in multiple types of cancer, and it's found in multiple types of neurological diseases. So the question is, how is, it, how is the RNA getting out of our genome? 
into the and into the blood where it's being detected. So this actually is something that Dr. Navio uh, identified in his cell danger response research that the sixth phase of his cell danger response identified the quote unquote mobilization of human endogenous retroviruses from within our genome. So there's been some chain of evidence that has shown that uh, the mobilization of these retroviruses from our genome stimulate the innate immune system. And so we're looking at a lot of the same players of the innate immune system with respect to retroviruses, C4, C2, um, factor B. These are all parts of the innate immune system. And so we don't exactly know what they're doing because some papers have actually suggested that if that the like, for example, there's one paper published on type one diabetes, juvenile diabetes, that found that the presence of HERV K, the presence of, of a retrovirus, actually confers a protective effect in the development of type one diabetes. And so I thought about that. Well, wait a second. I thought retroviruses are supposed to be associated with disease. Well, they may be associated, but they don't necessarily maybe they might not be causal. So just because they stimulate the innate immune system doesn't mean that they're bad. They may be, they, and there's actually been studies that have shown that retroviruses are associated with protecting the host from viral infections. So to me, to me, the case of retrovirus and what it's doing, it's not an open and shut case. I think that we have to pay closer attention to where they're coming from within the genome, what genes they're found in, and and what what genes they're interacting with. And I think that when you when somebody begins to start studying more closely the the viral genome retroviral genome machinery within RCCX, you're going to find that it's doing things that we hadn't discovered yet. We're just getting started, aren't we? <laughs> On you know understanding the how retroviruses are really. Um, you know, they're probably, you know, of course, have, there's an evolutionary um, benefit, I'm sure, or we would not have, you know, six to what is it, eight percent of our genome be, you know, um, populated by them. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the, the, ju- the jury, the jury is still out on what they're doing. But I think from, from my research, where it took me was that it, it seems that we that we need that they're, they're playing a role and they're stimulating the immune system. <clears throat> I think the problem is, is that they're, if, they're, if the inflammation that they, that they may be involved in stimulating isn't controlled, there may be a problem. Now, we act, now what's in, incidentally, since we're on this topic, there's actually another gene that's on the opposite side of the RCCX region that's technically not part of the region, but it actually sits between C4 and STK, STV19, and it's actually known as SCIV2L, and SCIV2L actually has been studied as having a region, or S&Ps from that gene have been studied to have the strongest genetic links to uh, lupus of any other gene ever identified. At least that was what the, the latest research had found. And that gene in particular controls the levels of interferon gamma, and it also controls what are uh, what's called the RNA exosome. It controls the expression of endogenous retroviruses once they are released from the genome and the splicing of those retroviral elements. So there is something going on there. there, The far as I got with that research is that there wasn't enough data to know one way or the other of how these uh, RNA exosomes are controlling retroviral expression. But that's something that's going to come up. I did find about four or five different genes that are controlling the retrovirus. 
And skiv to all is definitely one of those. Um, and that is, that is on the backside of the RCCS cluster. Yeah, that, no, that's fascinating. I'm excited to see, you know, what you continue to learn around this. Cause it's, you know, as I, as I feel, you know, as a clinician, I feel like we're just getting started to, you know, understand how, um, you know, to identify and treat these retroviruses. What I'd like to do now, if it's okay, is to kind of describe overall the, the phenotype and what they look like so that people out here that are listening might actually understand. You know, I've had many people tell me, you've just described me and my entire family. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. No, I would love that. So what I'm looking for is to find the association. And back in September, October, I actually did um, 55 calls with um, people, and I found that about the RCCX cluster seemed to cro- seemed to kind of um, segregate with about 30 to 40 percent of those people, pretty significant percent overall. But what I what those calls showed me was that it it there's common patterns that clearly show up. So the first thing that I look for is is that does the patient have some degree of joint hypermobility? Now um, the the hypermobility may they may have it themselves or their children may have it. Or it may exist in um, a, a you know a near relative, <clears throat> somebody in the family may have been do- diagnosed with EDS, <clears throat> or they have complications associated with joint hypermobility. Um, that's the first thing I look for. It's not the only thing that's important because you could technically have an undesirable RCCX genotype and actually not be hypermobile. And actually, the opposite thing has been observed that they can actually be uh, have a lack of mobility. And I think that in those cases, I, there actually are forms of EDS that have um, uh, tight joints where, where literally the muscles are uh, like bound up to the extent where, uh, their, their joints are not hypermobile. They're, they're the opposite. They're actually stiff. But the, the first thing I'm looking for to, to identify the most common phenotype is do they have hypermobility? And if the answer is yes, I move on to the next question. Does anybody in the family have any of the following autoimmune diseases, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, type one diabetes, celiac disease, Juvenile dermatomyositis, Graves' disease, Basit's disease, Crohn's disease, any other autoimmune disease, multiple sclerosis. And, and then I start to see that there's, they're saying, yes, they, they do. And I said, okay, that is by itself, those two associations are significant. <clears throat> then, you know, you'll start to see people say, oh, um, uh, by the way, uh, my father uh, was schizophrenic or uh, I, had a, I had an aunt that, that died, uh, and she, you know, she was, uh, she was, you know, psych- she was institutionalized for anxiety disorder and psychosis, and she's probably schizophrenic. Um, so, so I'm looking for those associations, autism, as I mentioned with C4B. So when there's problems associated with the, with the synaptic pruning is we see the psychiatric presentations, mm-hmm. right? And so when you see those, that kind of three, tri- those three different kinds of conditions, the hypermobility, the autoimmune component, and the psychiatric component, mm-hmm. those are a hook, line, and sinker that this is an RCCX um, phenotype. And the reason why you start to see it in families is because of the unequal crossover that the, that the cluster produces. And so unequal crossover is basically when, when you have a gene region that will produce uh, duplications of genes and the, the formation of what are called pseudogenes. Um, kind of like miniature genes that are incomplete. So this is some part of the anomaly with RCCX. Um, and so this, this is called, une- this can relate to what's called unequal crossing over. And this affects um, the families and, and is why this cluster tends to segregate and, and to move with families. So there's definitely this, you know, clinical history taking that you can do. Is there, um, 
and not to interrupt, um, but how about um, lab testing, you know, at this point, what kind of lab testing um, can patients request from their uh, physician? So I've, in that article that I wrote at the very end of it, I, I listed a, uh, a section called future testing for RCCX genotypes in additional questions. And so <clears throat> there's a lot of tests that will need to be what, what somebody will need to do is to conduct research studies that once we find the associated phenotypes, we want to run a battery of tests to find out, well, what do these levels look like in these people? And are there statistical associations that are significant? The first thing, the first thing to pay attention to is, especially if there's, an, if there's the autoimmune component with the cluster, is the total complement C4. And if, if there's a low, low, which is a blood protein that can be routinely measured through LabCorp and Quest should have it as well. Even, even, even other labs, it's a routine test. It's easy to run. Not split C4A, but total complement C4. Right. So if there's a total C4A, total C4 level that's low, that is a huge red flag for an RCCX monomodular genotype or an RCCX, uh, uh, they only have one long so the, the gene is basically separated out by the size as well as the copy number. <clears throat> so that is an RCCX, a huge red flag for that. If they have a low complement C4, I'd say anything less than 20 um, would be considered to be low. Um, I don't know if any labs can run the Tregs testing CD4, CD25. Um, in the instance that CD4, which is a which is the flow cytometry, that is this that is the marker for the Tregs. I would love somebody to conduct a study on the relationship between low C4 and Tregs in a patient population, <clears throat> because that is huge, and as I mentioned, with respect to autoimmune disease. I would also be paying attention to TGF-beta-1 levels, mm -hmm. and the difficulty in interpreting the levels of TGF-beta-1 is that um, because TGF-beta is such a ubiquitous cytokine, it's doing so many different things. Um, it's involved in cell, you know, stem cell differentiation and embryolo embryological development and um, immune signaling. It's, you know, it's linked to SIRS and mold and Lyme. And there's so, it's so many things that it'd be doing um, that we just don't know um, if the levels of it necessarily are important. And, and so, again, it's, it's that there's, there's a qualitative um, problem versus a quantitative problem. So, um, you can have a TGF-beta-1 level that's 10,000, and that's elevated, but what does that tell you about what's happening in the tissues? How is that translating in terms of the utilization of it and, and the maturation of it? One of the things that I've identified, or what I, I basically found in the literature, is that people with joint hypermobility syndromes have a dysregulation of growth factors, such as TGF-beta, such as PDGF, such as BEGF and IGF-1. And the reason for that is that the connective tissue and the extracellular matrix are points of activation for the body's growth factors. In other words, if you have deficient collagen, if you have ECM problems due to hypermobility, your ability to turn on and utilize those growth factors is going to be impaired. That, that, that might not necessarily reflect in the total level of those growth factors. But it, again, it's a qualitative problem, not necessarily quantitative, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. There's a difficulty in interpreting this from a black and white perspective, but nonetheless, 
I would be looking at TGF beta one levels anyway. I, I would, if, if possible, I'd look at all three of those, the Tregs, the C4, and the TGF beta together, because together the picture of those three would be telling more than just one, one of them themselves. We have been, you know, with Shoemaker and his, you know, lab profiles, you know, we've done TGF beta one for years and, you know, we found everybody had it elevated and it was pretty nonspecific. Um, and at the end of the day, as far as using it as a clinical um, treatment tool. Um, but no, I, I, I'm going to look all those tests up, Michael. And as you shared, you know, we, we need somebody to, you know, research this and um, set up a study. And then, you know, I'm sure many people are thinking, okay, so um, this is a really elegant and beautiful explanation of what we're seeing um, with these um, chronic disease patterns. Um, what can we do about it? I mean, what can people change their phenotype? Can they change their genetic expression? Yes. Um, and that is the, the, so the solutions component is where, um, it has to really come down to what's going on with each person. So <clears throat> the environmental vectors are going to converge with these RCCX phenotypes, because if you have this genetic predisposition, it means that your innate immune system is weak. It means that you're going to be more susceptible to viral infections. You're going to be more susceptible to the effects of toxins and mold because your innate immune system is involved in all of that stuff. So first of all, what we need to establish is what are the triggers that are affecting a person? So in the case of mold, for example, that is people, people with mold exposure that have RCCX, they are potentially going to develop an autoimmune component because of that, because their immune signaling is working very differently. So if we can establish the what, what those factors are, that's the first step. The second thing that I pay attention to is how can we regulate the extracellular matrix? So remember that chronic inflammation can cause a breakdown of collagen. As I like to say, and as I'll be saying in my Seattle presentation in March, there's two types of patients with joint hypermobility. The first type is somebody that has congenital, genetic inherited joint hypermobility due to some gene that, that produces collagen. The other type of a person has acquired joint hypermobility as a result of chronic illness. And for example, there was a paper that was just published in July that showed that Bartonella was the result of joint hypermobility. Once they cleared the infection, the hypermobility went from a seven to a zero. Wow. Mm -hmm. So we have to establish whether or not that hypermobility is genetic or not, because it can actually be improved if it's not genetic. And even if it is genetic, it could be improved to some extent. So I observed that um, in some cases that the use, so when, how do we regulate the extracellular matrix? It's like, that's a huge, that's like a three day <laughs> seminar just to get, and this is the introduction to it. <laughs> I'd go to that seminar. Psychology <laughs> and Hein and Pissinger and, mm -hmm. and, you know, Gerald Pollack and, and a near infrared light activating the, the matrix water in the, in the, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. you know, so, so I would say first is that if you are hypermobile, your matrix is impaired. So there isn't like a, a set protocol. However, I've seen some things work. And so the first thing I pay attention to is tissue hydration. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you're mentioning that because everyone's dehydrated, even outside of this RCCX phenotype. I, at least my, I feel like all of my patients are chronically dehydrated and maybe the low antidiuretic hormone is to explain for that, that we see a lot in biotoxin illness, but I'm, I'm really curious about your thoughts about tissue hydration. 
Well, and specifically, if, you, if you're RCCX and your CYP21A2 is knocked down, you're going to be pissing out all of your salts because aldosterone is going to be low. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it, ADH is one thing that definitely can be low, but also remember that aldosterone is integral in sodium balance in the body. So we've lo- I've, I've looked at the association. Somebody should be looking at urinary sodium in these patients. If it's high, if there's salt, if there's salt in the urine, then suspect an aldosterone deficiency secondary to CYP21A2. And that can contribute to the POTS picture, right, as well? Yes. The, the, the paper that I wrote, the, you know, there's was, there was associations for sure between aldosterone deficiency and POTS. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about it. I mean, POTS is definitely a vagus thing for, for the most part. But, but you know, remember, remember the danger signaling in general, pure energetic danger signaling is going to impair the function of the vagus. So if you've got if you've got chronic stuff going on, the vagus is going to shut down as, as, as probably as a part of a protective mechanism that's going to feed back into the brain. Um, but tissue hydration is imperative because consider this, that the, the, the uh, hyaluronic acid that is, is the kind of the, the mattressome webbing um, the, that it's all made of, it, it, one of its roles is to pull water into the tissues. Mm-hmm. So, so if you've got a, a loss of hyaluron, so when you have chronic inflammation, that an infiltration of MMP9, for example, metalloproteins 9, even MMPP3 and 1, those metalloproteinases are going to break down your collagen. The fibroblast cells, which are the matrix-producing cells, are going to go into a state of danger signaling. And I suspect that's what's happening, is that the purinergic signaling, I should point out that P2X7, the, the purinergic receptors, have been found um, to, to, to be stimulated by damage-associated molecular patterns. So when you're, when your hyaluronic acid and your decrin and biglycan and other proteoglycans are being broken apart by your metalloproteinases, that's going to stimulate the inflammasome mechanisms, those protein complexes in the, in the immune cells are going to stimulate. And that, if that, if that's not well regulated, you're going to have autoimmunity. And so that, that's a problem. So we need to focus on hydration as a basic way of reestablishing the charge and hydraulic, the, the hydraulic pressure and the charge dynamics. Remember that salt electrically charges the cells. The salt, there's no such thing as water in the human body. All the fluid in the human body is, is electrolytes and ions and, and proteins. And there's a chart, there's a specific charge to it. So we pay attention to salt balance and not only sodium, but also sulfate. Remember all those glycosaminoglycans and the connective tissue are all sulfated. Your, your hyaluronic acid, your um, glucosamine sulfate, your heparin sulfate, they're sulfated. So sulfate is one of the, the kind of the missing electrolytes, but something that I think is really important in the tissue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the first thing. The other thing I pay attention to is, is light exposure because Gerald Pollack's research on the fourth phase of water is clearly very, very relevant. And I believe that and if you look at, if you look at um, Heinz research, um, who is a homotoxicologist, who was looking at regulating the matrix along with Pissinger, he was identifying that the matrosome contains this matrix water that is pumping off the protons and is negatively charged. Well, that's exactly, that's exactly the same thing that Pollock is finding. And what Pollock found is that near-infrared light in the 800 nanometer spectrum is increasing those exclusion zones. So we're being hydrated by the sun. Yeah, Dr. Pollock is a friend and he's uh, of Sophia and he's really, um, you know, his research really um, 
caused us to um, put more infrared light into our protocols and people do, you know, feel a effect. And, you know, a lot of people have the infrared sauna and of course get out into the sun, you know, that's, you know, an important thing, but living in Seattle, we're a little bit compromised in that way. The other thing that I find to be important for regulating the matrix are polysaccharides. Mm-hmm. So polysaccharides are sugar complexes that basically are the, as I call them, the, the basic food stuff for all the matrix constituents. And so there's a number of polysaccharides that have emerged in the Ehlers-Danlos um, syndrome community. Um, you know, credit has to be given to them for basically bootlegging to get bootstrapping together um, makeshift protocols for helping to modulate their connective tissue. And I think that there's definitely a role for aloe vera polysaccharides. I've seen them work and I, they definitely are doing more than we realize. Um, polymanin, for example, has been shown to uh, attenuate uh, collagen one and three synthesis. <clears throat> so we know, we know that, we know that the, poly, the different manins and polymanins from aloe vera are potential workarounds for helping to rebuild collagen helping to provide the basic sugar complexes that the fibroblast cells need in order to synthesize new ECM constituents. Um, I also find that um, other polysaccharides, like, uh, for example, um, marine, uh, marine red algae, for example, was one case study of Crohn's disease where the patient underwent rapid tissue healing post-operative only when he, he really ramped up amino acids and, and included four grams a day of Aquaman marine red algae polysaccharides. And, and all the, CR, the CRP and the ESR dropped within days of doing that and, and remained constantly low since. So there's, and the hypermobility reduced 30%. So there's, there's no doubt that in some cases, polysaccharides can actually be really, really significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, um, we, I mean, we'll use aloe vera in protocols, but not specifically the polymannan. And so I, um, that's a great tip. I, I'd love to um, research that more and integrate that more. And in terms of some of the other stuff, so, you know, there's I, modulating the stress response in different ways. Remember, if somebody has CYP21A2, <laughs> that they're actually deficient in cortisol, we, we frequently see, you know, if the C4 is low, the, the nine out of 10 times, your 24-hour free cortisol is going to be tanked. And it's because the 35th intron of the C4B gene controls the transcription of cortisol from progesterone. <clears throat> so mutations of C4 affect how much cortisol you're going to make. So they're, again, they're tied at the hip, as I mentioned earlier. But doing things to control the stress response are integral. Um, we, we also think that you know, there's a role for you know, very specific things like coleus, <clears throat> which is a cyclic AMP promoter, as it turns out that the CYP21A2 gene um, requires cyclic AMP to be activated. Mm-hmm. So this is an intracellular tra- um, uh, signaling messenger that is often shows up a lot, especially if somebody's hypothyroid, because you need thyroid hormone to, to activate your cyclic AMP, and you need growth factors to activate your cyclic AMP. So I think there's actually reason to believe that cyclic AMP levels are going to be lower in your RCCX phenotype. You know, for example, um, it, it, because of the fact that you've got uh, a, a probable inability to activate your growth factors, your cyclic AMP could be impaired. There's at least three or four growth factors that, that can turn on your cyclic AMP system. So we're actually looking at using um, embryonic uh, chicken embryo extract, which contains fibroblast growth factors and other growth factors, as a way to regulate kind of the whole system architecture. Yeah, we we use PRP in the clinic um, for some things or, you know, um, and so I was just thinking if you have integrated stem cells or some type of stem cell 
um, you know, treatment with the platelet-rich plasma, there's a lot of the growth factors, right, um, in that um, injectable material. So I was just wondering if you've seen good results with those types of uh, treatments. I've seen them work really well in some cases, and I've seen them backfire in, in severe um, ways, too. Um, I had somebody recently with uh, somebody recently with PRP injections, which caused um, significant uh, adverse downward spiral uh, in an EDS client. So we have to be aware that, that that in people with EDS and joint hypermobility, their connective tissue doesn't work the same as it does with other people. And so um, there, we have to kind of work around some of those problems sometimes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I've seen stem cells go both ways as well. Um, um, I think it's timing, you know, for people. Well, Michael, I'm, I'm sure I could ask you a thousand more questions. This has been so insightful and enlightening. And I just so appreciate the work you're doing. You're really at the cutting edge of, you know, trying to figure out, um, you know, more of the deep science of why we see what we're seeing, um, in our practices. And, um, I know I'm going to be at the the conference that you're going to be speaking at in Seattle in March. So I'm uh, looking forward to hearing this all again as well. And I'm sure in a, you know, in a whole other uh, deeper dive, Um, how can our audience find out more about your work? Um, Do you work with patients? If the um, practitioners, you know, want to learn more about, um, you know, your research, I know that you have wonderful practitioner courses, but how can um, our listeners learn more about you? So you can go to my website, which is www.metabolichealing.com, metabolichealing.com. And we have a clinical consulting team that I work with. Um, and again, we, we do we do work with a lot of clients with complex illness. And if you're a health practitioner um, interested in, in different types of clinical training programs, um, I've created five clinical courses over the last several years. And um, we, we work with practitioners as well. Mm-hmm. Great. And we'll put a link um, in the show notes to your website. And I'm excited to learn more from you. And I know that we'll be in touch. And I so appreciate your time. Thank you, Christine. Thank you for listening to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Michael McAvoy. Again, you can learn more about his work at metabolichealing.com. And if you are enjoying these podcasts, I would love for you to leave a review and feel free to also send us information on guests you'd like to see or any questions you may have to info at drchristineschaffner.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be in touch soon.